Hello and welcome to the Good Teaching Podcast, where we discuss effective teaching strategies of college professors. I'm your host, Dr. Toy and Ali, and I'm so excited to share this interview today. So we have a special guest, Dr. Chanasa Eluwe, and I'm actually going to introduce you to her, tell you a little bit about her background, and then we'll jump into the interview, talk about some projects she's been working on, as well as her most effective teaching strategies. So Dr. Chanasa is a professor, speaker, grief coach, and the CEO and founder of True Titans Consulting Group. She's an expert on grief leadership in higher education and trauma-informed practices in organizational settings. She she supports leaders in moving forward to make impactful change in the midst of uncertainty with empathy and care. She provides strategic coaching and consulting that opens the doors to transformation through policy and practice. She's also an associate professor of educational leadership in higher education at Kennesaw State University. Her research focuses on grief leadership, trauma-informed leadership practices in organizational settings, and the health and well-being of historically marginalized and underrepresented populations. She currently resides in Atlanta, Georgia, a fellow Georgian, with her husband and two children. So let's welcome Dr. Chanasa to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So as we're recording this, it is the very earliest part of August. So we're finishing up our summer. We're about to go into fall semester. So can you tell us how have you spent your summer? What summer? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I feel like this has been one of the most busiest summers that I did not anticipate. Mm. I built in a lot of what I thought would have been uh, free time, but that time was quickly encumbered with all the things I didn't get a chance to do during the academic year. So lots of writing, uh, lots of just catching up on things around the house, but um, also some good family trips as well. So it, it was a mix, uh, a 50-50 mix of work and, and a little bit of play and pleasure, but um, it, it definitely felt like a non-summer for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like it's so misleading that, you know, with the academic calendar, you know, we kind of work nine to 10 months a year and then we have the summers off, but the work begins in the summer. Absolutely. (laughs) 100%. Yes. Well, I'm glad you were able to find a little bit of time, especially with family. Um, But yeah, I would love to just talk about your career a little bit. So I want to know what led you to becoming associate professor of educational leadership in higher education? Like, did you know you wanted to go to grad school? Did you know you wanted to be a professor originally? Like, how did the whole journey come to be? I think this is such a good question, to be frank. Um, You know, when I was growing up, um, I grew up in a bicultural household. I'm Nigerian-American. And um, in a Nigerian household, you could be one of three things that are deemed an acceptable profession, either a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, or attorney, right? Well, and in my regard, um, I kept saying I was going to be a medical doctor, but I don't do blood, germs, or needles. And so when I got into undergrad um, and I was taking these classes, I just knew that there was a disconnect, complete disconnect. And I had to break my parents' hearts and let them know, look, I'll be a doctor of a different kind. And, <laughs> and true to form, I chose to go to graduate school. I found my passion in student affairs um, while I was an undergrad and then pursued a master's and then my doctorate in educational leadership with a concentration in higher ed. And graduating from the program, I was thinking about what do I want to be when I grow up? I have all of this education now. 
what might it look like for me in a lot of ways that that I would be um, an administrator in a higher education mm-hmm. institution. But, you know, I had some amazing mentors who saw that I had great writing abilities and who, who knew that I would be a great faculty member. And they encouraged me to not close the door on being a professor. So when I was applying my final year for different positions, I was applying for administrative roles at different colleges and universities, but I also applied for different faculty roles as well. And you can guess which one hit first. And so here I am today. (laughs) I got my first faculty role right out of uh, graduate school, which is an anomaly, to be honest, because when we think about um, higher ed at large, especially when it comes to the job market, um, we were reading all of the different issues coming up in the Chronicle about what it looked like to gain employment in a faculty role post-graduation. And um, I consider myself fortunate to be able to land a a gig, but I do recognize that that is not oftentimes, many, many times, honestly, not the case. And so um, I I was able to get a job right out and start working as a faculty member. I love that. So what really like struck me was the beginning of your story, very similar to mine. You know, I am also Nigerian and American (laughs) and, you know, when people meet a smart, quote unquote, smart child. You, oh, you got to be a doctor. You got to be a lawyer. <laughs> or then people started learning about engineering. So they threw that in there too. Okay. And I tried to be an eye doctor because like you, I was like the blood, the patient, maybe not making it is not for me. Maybe I'll try to be an eye doctor. Mm-hmm. I even like shadowed an eye doctor when I was in high school. It was beyond boring. I hated <laughs> my science classes. And I was like, why am I doing this to myself? I love math. Let me just go on from there. So yes, I very much resonated with your story and absolutely. you still became a doctor. So I'm sure your parents are very proud. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> they were definitely happy. They didn't see the vision, but when I finished, they were like, okay, I understand. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. Love that. Okay. So let's talk about that first job. So you were able to get a job right away out of grad school. How was that experience as a new tenure track faculty member? Was it overwhelming? Did you have felt like it was too much work? Did you have any guidance? Like, how did you know what to do? What were all the things that happened? I mean, I think it's all the things you just mentioned, right? Well, um, coming out the gate right out of grad school, I was in a completely new environment, a, a, an out-of-state exp- an out of state experience um, completely. And when I was at my, my new institution, fresh out of grad school, there there were certain things that graduate school did not prepare me for. Um, you have the book knowledge, the content knowledge that you learn with your degree. But on the flip side, as a woman of color entering into this new academic environment, um, and particularly as the only Black woman in my unit, um, I was not prepared for the daily microaggressions. It, it really caught me all the way off guard. I know that sounds uh, like an anomaly at times to hear, but I will say that um, I was excited to take on this new role. I came in, came in the door with, you know, my PowerPoint slides prepared. I came in the door with um, all of this great information and exercises that I wanted to do with my students. But what I soon realized thereafter that there was somewhat of a disconnect when they saw me as a knowledge producer teaching them new information. And also there was a little bit of ageism there because I was teaching people who are also twice my age. And so when they saw me come in the door and they saw me presenting materials to them, um, they were also like, okay, you know, Dr. Elloway is brilliant. Obviously she's here, but honey, she doesn't have the years of experience that can really support me gaining anything from her. And so to discount the evidence-based or the research-based knowledge that I was bringing into the classroom space, to even discount the fact that I was also leveraging current uh, practitioners in the field 
to really support and facilitate some of that dialogue in the classroom, uh, again, caught me completely off guard. And so I think coming in the door as a new tenure track faculty member, um, I was excited, but that excitement uh, soon fizzled out because of the different experiences in the classroom. Mm-hmm. That is so true. I never even thought about the age of your students. So being in education, most people who go to grad school or go to school for education, maybe they've already taught in the classroom and they're coming back. You made me think of a story. I started <laughs> teaching when I was a graduate student and I was, I don't know what, 22, 23 or something. So some of my students were older than me. And I thought that to respect me, I needed to wear glasses. I have 20-20 vision. So I got some personality glasses and I would just wear glasses every time I taught my class just to feel like I was wiser, just to give out the impression that I was wise to my students. So yeah, that was, sounds like a very challenging um, experience. So what happened um, there? Did you kind of get the hang of what was going on there? Did you gain the respect of your students? Did it turn into a good experience or how did you move on from that experience? Yeah, so I moved on, right? So I recognized early on that I was going to give it my best shot, but I I also was of the presence of mind that um, I wanted to make sure that the space was not only comfortable and safe for my students, but also for myself at the same time. And there was a particular incident that happened one night while we were in class where Um, I felt like my safety was violated in in a lot of ways because of how the student responded to some of the material I was presenting where they didn't fully agree. And so I recognized that in a lot of ways that um, when I started talking to leaders and asking for additional support, that the types of support that I was getting was not, um, wasn't necessarily helpful and supportive in that context. Um, And I don't feel like I was fully set up for success there. And that's a whole different conversation when we talk about what types of resources are needed to appropriately socialize new faculty into these roles. But I recognize that um, I have never been one to romanticize the academy. You know, again, I was very fortunate to land a, a job right out of grad school, but I was also open to the fact that um, I still had an opp- opportunity to pivot to something else. And so when I made the choice to leave that role, I was open to landing the faculty role, one, closer to where I had community and family, but then also thinking about what if I don't land a role closer to home? Um, what might that look like? And I was also open to leaving altogether to make sure that, again, um, there was a balance with the work life and the home life as well, because work was a small portion of what I considered to be my life at the time. And I wanted to make sure I gave myself the opportunity to really live a well-rounded life. And I think oftentimes, um, when we think about work, work is such a big part of our day. We spend eight hours working, eight hours sleeping, if you can, and then eight hours doing other miscellaneous activities, right? And so I knew that I wanted the opportunity to have a more balanced life. And that big piece of that was, where do I feel comfortable? Where do I feel safe? Where can I go where I know that there's support? And so I was fortunate enough to land another job at home, in my home state, near family, near community. Um, But that is not oftentimes the case. That is so great. So I know that it's so scary to like land a job and then put yourself back out there on the job market. It's like, oh my goodness, what if this was the only job I could have ever gotten? So it's it's a big risk, but just like with in, in grad school, when people have an advisor who's not the best fit, 
every grad student that I've talked to who has changed their advisor, even if it took them an additional year of grad school, they have never regret, regretted their decision. There's something about that peace of mind, that comfort, that right fit that is more important. So I'm so glad that you shared that story. Absolutely. So you mentioned being well-rounded because you definitely are after my own heart as well, because I'm with you on this. So not only are you a professor and you have your family and your home life? You are a business owner. You yeah. founded True Titans Consulting Group. So can you tell us what this group is all about and what led you to start this company? Absolutely. So uh, it's really interesting how sometimes our professional experiences, whether good or bad, in my case, they were a little bit bad or rocky in the start, really open up our eyes to other opportunities, right? So I didn't allow my pain and that previous experience to go away um, and be purposeless, I turned it into uh, a, a company where I knew that I wanted to provide support to professionals of color who are navigating difficult and challenging experiences in the workplace. And so I launched my own business on the back end of leaving that previous role where I wanted to make sure out the gate, I was able to apply some practical knowledge some research-based strategies to coaching and so I launched in 2016. I'm, I'm saying 2016. I'm like, wow, it's been that long. But yeah. as we're going on um, almost eight years now. And so I'm so excited to see the growth of this organization itself. Um, I do a lot of coaching work um, in the past. And recently I've pivoted the business. So I was doing a lot of career coaching um, for clients of color. And um, there's a deeper story to the pivot. But I'll mention here that I've recently pivoted the business to start doing more grief work and more trauma-informed work based on um, my own personal losses, um, particularly the past four years. And then even as we've navigated COVID and have witnessed all types of loss on multiple levels, whether it was loss of normalcy, loss in loved ones, loss in um, jobs, uh, you name it, we've had some form of loss that we've walked through, which has contributed to um, this kind of perpetual state of collective grief that we've been navigating. And so I recognize that I had a unique skill set that I really wanted to leverage and use this business to really support. And so um, last year, I pivoted to start doing grief coaching and also doing more public speaking around trauma-informed practices in organizational settings. That's beautiful. I love that. You know, as like academics and professors, we have so much knowledge and expertise that we don't always get to use in our roles as faculty members. Like the things that we know and the things that we can help people do don't really fit in the scope of the university curriculum. Right. <laughs> and so we have this like burning desire to help people that we just got to get it out there. And so just like you were doing, starting your own business is one way that you can do that. Um, I actually have a workshop called the In Independent professor workshop where I teach yeah. uh, professors how to create their own learning experience that they host themselves. So if you're like feeling inspired by Dr. Chinasa and want to do something like that, I'll put a link to that workshop um, below this video or in the um, show notes of this episode. Okay. So you talked about trauma-informed strategies and healing and all the things like that. You actually wrote an article with a few of your colleagues called Care for Faculty in Challenging Times, Considerations for Exploring Hope and Healing. And when I was reading it, I was like, oh my goodness, yes. There was a big focus like during and after the COVID-19 pandemic to like really help our students and like help our students thrive and support them and come up with new ways to teach them. But also like, what about us, <laughs> the faculty members doing it? So can you talk about your article and maybe a little bit of the motivation around why you all wrote the article and a bit about what it's about? 
Yes. So um, myself and two amazing colleagues um, were having some critical dialogues at the height of COVID. And we were really thinking about all of the different things that we were seeing unfold, especially as it pertains to how um, we were being being able to provide support to faculty. Um, In my professional capacity, I also have a fellowship uh, with our Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. And so I had opportunity to coach faculty as well as do some programming in that regard. And so as we were talking, um, there was this just pervasive through line of knowing that we were at the front lines providing support to our students, but we were finding that ourselves and other colleagues were desperately struggling with managing and navigating uh, COVID, um, all of the myriad of changes that we saw unfolding, care for ourselves, care for our loved ones. Nav- I mean, I mean, it was a series of unprecedented event after unprecedented event. It was breaking news headlines every day. There was just so much grief and trauma across the board that we knew that our students were struggling to navigate the current context, and even, even up until now. But we're like, if the students are struggling, you have to know that the adults, the, the faculty, the teachers, the staff are also struggling at the same time. And so we wrote the article with the intent of talking about how do we really provide support for faculty during challenging times, recognizing that in this push to really emphasize student success, that really is predicated on the fact that if your faculty are not doing well mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, if they do not have the resources to support them, even as they navigate their own professional context, they're not going to be able to be at their best to support our students. And so we really were intentional about stating up front that faculty success is as important as student success. It has to be. Because when we're at our best, we can give our best to our students. Mm-hmm. It's that notion of not being able to pour from an empty cup. You can't pour from what you don't have. And so oftentimes when we're caring for others, and particularly in this context, caring for our students, we leave ourselves outside of this care loop. We're doing all the things to make sure everyone's okay, but who's circling back to make sure we're good as well? Mm-hmm. It's so not good. really happening. Yeah. yeah, that's so true. And so important. Wow. You know, I didn't even consider until I read your article. I was like, you know what? I struggled during the pandemic. I was 2021 was the most exhausting year of my life. And I was like, I feel like I'm finally recovering from that and bouncing back from that. So in the article, you talk about resilience and you kind of go deeper into resilience than what I've seen before. So you mentioned how it's more than just bouncing back. And so I wanted to just talk about like, what do you mean by that? And like, why is it so important to have a deeper definition for resilience? Yes. So, you know, oftentimes, you know, during the pandemic, especially, we were told, you know, we we were tapping into our resilience reserves in general just to exist on a, on a day-to-day basis, right? Like sometimes we had nothing to give, but we were resilient in saying that we were going to show up, that in spite of all of the challenges that we were facing, we were continuously bouncing back from hurdle after hurdle after hurdle or challenge after challenge. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, when we were thinking about this article and even talking about resiliency as a term, um, we began to recognize, because we actually did a research study on this where we interviewed other um, colleagues in the field at large, one thing that kind of stood out to us in this whole thing was that, you know, it was okay if we called ourselves resilient. Like if I felt resilient and that's how I wanted to categorize my experience, that was perfectly okay. But what became an issue was when we saw leaders or administrators weaponizing resilience to say, come on now, bounce back. We got work to do. Okay. Like, come on now, let's, let's pull it together. There's things to do. We got to hit these, um, 
these goals and these initiatives for this year. And so it was like a weaponization of resilience without care or regard for what was the lived experience of the faculty mm -hmm. or the staff who were on the front lines doing the work. And so we said it's important to have a much deeper definition, especially when you consider who was the one that's using the term resilience. If that's a term that I want to use to, again, attribute to my lived experience because I felt resilient in a moment where I thought I would break down, then I would be proud to share that, right? But if someone's using that on me and that's not akin or does not resonate with my experience, that's problematic. And I think yeah. in a lot of ways, we saw resilience becoming a problematic issue um, when we said, uh, we, we, <laughs> I'm laughing because in the, in the article itself, we had these series of terms called pandemic dirty words. And we asked colleagues to identify what was the dirty word for them that was being used from leaders, supervisors, or what have you. And resilience is one of those words. It became mm -hmm. a dirty word in a lot of ways because people simply did not feel resilient. They were exhausted. They were tired. We felt neglected in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and those were the words that would have made more sense instead of, again, having resilience weaponized in that context. Mm, yeah. That's good. So taking the time to think. So it's okay for me to say, you know what? This was a rough year. I bounced back. I am resilient, but it's not something that I can put on someone else and say, you need to be resilient and make it through. Like, how, how are we doing? How are we putting that on someone else? So I think that's a wonderful clarification. Yeah. And I'm glad you all mentioned that. So let's talk about like how we can like get started kind of doing this work and having these conversations. So in the article, you all mentioned some strategies for faculty to like start conversations on how we can start bringing in the wellness and well-being practices into higher education. And so one of the first strategies you have here is naming our experiences. And I imagine resilience comes into play <laughs> as well. So you talk about naming our experiences and then embedding um, trauma-informed practices in our day-to-day -day operations. And then finally, um, remembering that faculty success also impacts student success. So are there any one of those strategies that you want to elaborate on? You know, I mentioned early on that, you know, that that piece around faculty success, mm -hmm. embodying student success is, is so key. Um, oftentimes, even before we can think about what it means to name our experiences, it really is cultivating spaces where we can begin to provide opportunities for faculty to flourish and thrive. And I think that gets difficult when we're in this kind of perpetual situation where there's so much uncertainty and where we've had to continuously adapt um, semester after semester, dare I say month to month in some cases as we navigated the past uh, couple of years. But, you know, we've had to prioritize mental health and well-being, rightfully so, in ways that really will support the success of our students. Um, but when we think about the ways in which faculty also need faculty and staff, because I, I don't want to forget staff because mm -hmm. there's such an integral part to our institutions. But when we think about the ways that faculty and, and staff need support, those programmatic efforts sometimes go unheard. And so it really is thinking about what would make this place supportive and also provide opportunities for wellness and well-being for our faculty and staff who are here. And it's given them the opportunity to, to think through that with you, not just a, putting forth a program or an event, but letting it be a collaborative conversation where we can all think through strategically what might be helpful in different groups, right? 
Um, and oftentimes, you know, when we're thinking about programming, that's great because we need the programs, but oftentimes key voices are missing from these conversations. And so it's thinking through those strategies, which is, which is absolutely necessary. Yes. That co-creation. Yes. 100%. Yes. It's so key. It's like, it's almost like, you know, when you teach a class for the first time, it's likely the worst you'll ever teach that class. But then once you, once you get the feedback from the students, that next group of students, uh, they benefit so much. And it's because you're actually using the information from the previous students. You're co-creating the next experience um, with your previous students. And I think that's so important instead of just like creating these initiatives and programs, like do the people want it? (laughs) Do the people need it? Are they going to use it? (laughs) What do they actually want? Uh, I think that's so important. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. So, you know, this podcast, Good Teaching, it's all about effective teaching strategies. Like what kind of things are you seeing in your classrooms that are really working for you and your students? And like you mentioned before, you were telling me faculty success equals student success. And you've also been using some trauma-informed teaching practices in your classroom. So I would love for you to just share anything you would like to share about what's been working for you in your classes. Yeah, you know, I think that's such an important question, because in a lot of ways, when we think about teaching, I think the traditional ways that we've been trained to think about teaching, it usually is like this sage on the stage model, where someone is the knowledge bearer, and they're sharing forth or pouring out everything in their mind onto their students. But I think a big piece of what teaching is, is co-creating a learning space where we can all walk into the classroom environment with our lived experiences, with the knowledge that we bear, uh, whether it's through um, reading, you know, books, like through our, our degrees or our books or what we've come to know, or whether it's through even our ancestry, right? What we've been able to cultivate over time through our own ca- types of capital that we embody, whether it's our familiar capital, our cultural capital, our social networks that have shaped and informed the very people who, of who we are, right? Um, because that adds wealth to the learning environment. When I'm talking with my students, and I'm thinking about how can I how can I implement trauma-informed teaching practices into this space? It's making sure that I create spaces for them to to be seen, valued, and heard. And I think in this um, context, that is really important to also leverage the power of storytelling, giving people the opportunities to share as they feel comfortable their stories and how it connects connects to the broader themes of what we're discussing in the class, because that adds richness to what we're able to gather from the classroom setting. Um, I also think it means creating spaces where we're aware of what's needed in the room for people to feel supported, right? So, you know, we've talked a lot today about uh, the past couple of years being especially challenging in higher ed, right? And beyond that. And so I think even being mindful of just what is required to have a trauma-informed practice, are people eating? Do we need to make sure we embed a needs, um, a basic needs assessment within our syllabi with additional resources on where to access food? Um, maybe there's a local food pantry on campus or beyond. Um, do people need additional types of mental health support or, or other resources? Being mindful, one, of uh, the, what the research says about mental health services, right, and support, how some students may be averse to those services, depending on who they are and the dimensions of their identity, right? So how do we make sure that we're aware of uh, the resources available for students and being able to connect it um, more broadly to what they may need? Um, I think in that same vein as well, um, just continue to exercise flexibility. I know that we're coming into this space where we want to rush back to business as normal, 
Um, and we're forgetting all the many lessons we learned from the pandemic. And when it comes to good teaching practices, I think a big piece that we have to remember is that we are still processing information. Um, during the pandemic and afterwards, events have been happening faster than our brains can actually adapt and process. Mm -hmm. And so there is this continual need for grace, even as we come back into the classroom setting this, this semester, right? So to not forget that um, flexibility is still needed, that there's still care that's needed, that if your student is telling you that they are navigating the difficult challenge to give them the benefit of the doubt, to assume positive intent um, in that regard and look for ways to continuously provide support. Um, I think those pieces can be especially helpful as we're thinking about ways to really be trauma-informed and to create space for students to share their stories in whatever format that may look like as well. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that you said look for positive intent and believing our students. That's so important. It's easy to assume that maybe our students are lying to us. Maybe they wanted an extension, but is there really anything so bad about the extension? Like, what if you believe that a student has negative intent, but you're wrong, right? <laughs> you know, it's, I think that it's really important. And also getting to know our students can help yes. us as well. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, uh, what are you teaching this fall? What classes are you teaching? Ooh, I am teaching a new data, um, a data analysis course in higher ed settings course this fall. It's a new prep for me. So mm -hmm. I'm really excited because as we are in this age of AI technology, um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how we can leverage AI, particularly to support us in navigating the different contexts within higher ed. So whether it's through using it with recruiting or using it in other aspects of what we may do um, in our daily jobs. Um, I'm excited to see how it unfolds and how students have already been tapping into different types of AI technologies to support them in analyzing data across the board. That's really cool. I'm actually going to hit you with an um, unplanned question. Okay. <laughs> Is there anything that you are looking forward to doing in your class? Like any strategies you plan on implementing or activities or ideas or stories that you want to tell? Is there something that you're like, oh my goodness, I'm excited for this day of class? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm actively in course prep mode right now, right? So I think one interesting piece of this has been following the, the trends that are emerging online. So anytime we talk about any of the AI technologies right now, I feel like the conversation is changing daily. There is always something new to integrate. There's a new app, a new resource that's available. And so for me, I think a big piece of what I'm looking forward to as well is talking about the ethical uses of data. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think that conversation has to kind of, kind of foreground what we're doing before we can even fully leverage all of these technologies in different ways. Um, there was an interesting documentary I watched recently um, called, I think it's called Coded Bias, and I can pull it up and, and share it with you. Um, but it talks about all of the different ways that um, AI can be good, but it also talked about the, the flip side of the things that we often don't see, how bias can be baked in to some of these um, AI technologies. And I think oftentimes, it may be convenient to use, but when we don't get, when we, we're not as familiar with um, the programming and the coding and the structures that are embedded within these systems, that can also impact um, how we're able to leverage them fully, especially if we're talking about how do we use AI in higher ed, 
we need to make sure, one, that um, we are making sure the technology itself is inclusive and that it provides the opportunity for us to really do our work in meaningful ways and ways that don't harm others at the same time. And so I think if, if there were a piece that I'm looking forward to, it's really teasing out um, the ways in which we operate and use AI um, in ways that do minimal harm. Yes. Um, because I'm still learning, but as I learn, I'm interested to see what my students may also already be aware of that could also inform what I know. Yes, that is good. Yeah, you'll have to come back and share. <laughs> Maybe after the semester, you can come back and share what you have learned and what Absolutely. you've done with your students. I would love that. Yeah. Okay, uh, final question here is, do you have any final bits of teaching advice for new college instructors? So I'm imagining new people who are teaching for the first time or early in their career, maybe listening or watching this. And maybe do you have any advice for them that perhaps didn't fit into the scope of our conversation today that you want to share? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, as you asked me this question, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking back to a, a colleague that I work with here at my current institution who, um, it's a phenomenal woman, a phenomenal woman of color. And um, one piece of advice that she shared with me that I'll offer to, to, to your audience is this. Um, don't feel like you need to change your story or who you are to fit into whatever mold of the environment it is that you're, you're in right now. And I say that because in a lot of ways, you know, um, I am a byproduct of an immigrant household. I came into um, academe with various ways of knowing how to exist in the world, right? I had my, my own personal upbringing and background that informed that. But I think coming into this space um, as a professor that was at a new institution where I didn't see faces that looked like me, where I didn't see people even in the classroom that reflected who I was or in the background, I began to dim my light in a lot of ways, I began to um, shrink back and lose my voice because I was nervous about saying the wrong thing. And so I almost in a lot of ways early in my career began to like shape shift a little bit or be a chameleon to make myself adaptable or, or, or likable or amicable in these spaces. And I recognized that that was to my own detriment. And so if I could say anything to a new colleague who's walking in to their first college classroom, I would say just be yourself. Like, it literally um, is needed because people need to see possibility models of what different types of knowledge producers look like. And when we try to fit a mold, when we try to look like somebody else who did it, because even if you Googled a professor, you're not going to see my face, right? So I'm already <laughs> breaking the mold when I walk in the door. So be you, do you. And, and it literally is like, however you want to exist in the world, do that when you go into your classroom because you're signaling to others and giving themselves permission to just exist and be as well. And if I could be a possibility model to anyone else, I would just say, I want to show up in my fullness so you feel compelled to, to show up in yours, right? And whatever that looks like, to know that it's okay and it's acceptable. And so teach in your own ways, use your own examples, tailor them, tailor the assignments to the populations that exist in the room. Um, don't feel like you have to go according to the mold. It's okay to break the mold um, because we need personalized instruction. We need instruction that connects with others. And don't be afraid to leverage your story to build connections with those who are in the classroom space. I think it's it very easy to be a little timid and a little afraid when you're walking into the classroom. 
But people are looking for that connection, especially um, as we've been isolated these past couple of years. And so I think it's okay to, to be okay with getting to know your students, building rapport with them, sharing as you feel comfortable pieces of yourself that could really encourage them as well as they move along their journey. Because we are all possibility models to someone in our respective spaces. And they deserve to see you in that, in that regard, shine and do your work. Wow. Oh, that was beautiful. Like I was getting emotional when you were speaking. That was so good. That was like the best advice. Thank you so much for sharing it. Also, it very much resonated with me. Like when I walk into the classroom, I am the first and likely the only black woman who has a PhD in math that my students will ever meet period. And just yeah. the fact of me existing means something. Mm -hmm. And it's important that I show up for them. I'm about to get emotional. This okay. is so good. <laughs> Listen. Yes, yes. Okay. All right. This has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all that you did. Can you share with the audience where they can find you online if they want to connect with you? Yes, you can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active right now. I dabble a little bit in threads, but I'm at Dr. Chinasa LOA. And then you can also reach me, reach out to me on my website at www.drchinasaloa.com. Awesome. And I will also put a link to the article that you and your colleagues wrote. I'll put that in the description of the video, in the show notes for the episode. And there's always going to be a blog post that go along with every <laughs> single episode that you all can check out. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Chinasa, for sharing with us. And thank you everyone for listening and watching along. Have a wonderful day. We will see you next time and happy teaching. Bye.